at the end of 1989, the civil war in Liberia started. I'm 11 years old. I mean, I'm talking bullets flying, rockets going back and forth. A rocket had fell on my house and there were no survivors. So I thought maybe my family was in hiding in my old house and they had all been killed. We left Liberia. We were now officially refugees. So we come to America <laughs> and the gap between my expectations and reality is huge. Every day we pass by people who have stories that need to be heard because we need to be shaped by them. This is one of those stories. Marcus Doe. Sir, it is, it is a, a privilege to have this day with you. It's really good to be here. <laughs> uh, really good to be here. Well, you know, I, uh, there's been a couple of different times where I've been able to be around you and, um, and listen to you talk, listen to you articulate about life and about the Lord and about your own personal journey. And when I heard just a little bit of it, I thought, man, that's a guy that I would like to get to know better. And I would like to know more about his story. And, uh, you actually have this great Ted talk that you have out, which we are, we're going to link to in the show notes here for people to see that talks about your, your unique journey. And, uh, and I know we have the confines of, of a, of a short podcast video cast we're doing here to talk about that. And I know, man, your life can be unpacked and unpacked and unpacked and unpacked all over. Um, but what I wanted to talk to today was about uh, your time when you were uh, a refugee and you came to the United States. And that is a, a unique experience and um, one that I think is timely for us to hear about now. We always have refugees coming to the United States. Um, but I thought that you could add to this conversation. So again, thanks. Uh, thanks Thank you. For... I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. I'm yeah, glad to talk about it. And uh yeah, let's go. Let's go. All right. Well, Marcus, um, take us back to you being a five-year-old boy. Where were you? What did life look like? What was going on in your universe? At the age of five, as um, man, we're in the mid-80s at this point. Uh, just just started school. Um, I'm the youngest of six children between my both my parents. Uh, my oldest brother is 21 years older. So there's a big gap between my oldest brother and myself. Um, I am going to an elementary school where is you know it's 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 a, it's a private school. So my dad invested, my parents invested a lot in my early education. Uh, my father is the assistant director uh, for administration of the Secret Service of Liberia, West Africa, a small country. And my mother works at the University of Liberia, where she. Um, mops floors. My mother is um, barely literate. Um, and I figured that out pretty quickly after I started going to school that she can't really write her name or, or pronounce words or read. Um, that's, that's, I saw that as a tragedy as a young, as a young boy. Uh, my father is really high up in, in, at this point, in um, the government of Liberia, which at that time is ruled by a man named Samuel Doe, which had the same last name. But he's a dictator who had come to power um, through a military coup. 
and had killed most of the people in the last regime, which my dad coincidentally worked for as well. Um, my dad was a, a hardworking man, a man of a kind of work ethic was work was important to him and he valued his work and he did the work that he did. My dad was pretty early on became a like a hero. He was I mean, every boy's wants to look at look at their father as a hero. My dad was particularly so. Uh we became interested in the same things. He loved soccer and so did I and took me to games and he, I mean he was Saturday mornings, I'm hanging with my dad. Um and I grew up pretty much, my mom, my, my, my cousins now would say, man, you were so attached to your mother as, as a boy, uh, being the last one. My mother never had any girls. Um, so when I was the last one, she kind of took hold, took hold of me. So it was a, it was a, it was a great growing up in the eighties. Um, by 1988, my mother unfortunately went back to her village. She came back and she became very sick and, uh, it was what we found out was that my mother was poisoned at some point and we took her to every Western hospital in Liberia. She actually ended up going to witch doctors around the country. And in April of 1989, I was just about to turn 10. My mother died. Um, Very unexplained. um, But that shook my world. Um, But that was probably one of the first places that I felt that God was meeting me and I wasn't paying attention. Um, I would take you back just probably about six months or a year before my mother died. I will say my parents were, were Christian. They went to the Methodist church every once in a while. But when things got tough, they went back to African animism. Uh, my brothers were, my older brothers were more involved in the church than I think my parents were. I wasn't involved in the church really. Um, we were sitting in the Methodist church in downtown Monrovia uh, where we went, I don't know, probably once or twice a year, maybe Easter, you know, average thing. And the pastor was preaching on, I think, John 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. I remember that story so vividly. And then a year later, my mother died and was sitting in the same church, same pastor. And I'm asking myself, I'm sitting in the front row and the people's gazes are on me. Oh, how people, I could feel people felt sorry for me. Um, and I'm thinking to God, why can't you raise my mother like Jesus raised Lazarus? And I prayed that prayer and it never, it never, obviously never happened. At that point, I would live with my aunts periodically, my, my dad's brother's wives. So I would live with one brother and his wife, which they're older people, they have their own families. So just so I could have a motherly figure that I was, I was familiar with, you know, my aunt Dolly took me for a week. My aunt Julia took me for a time. My aunt Annie took me for a time. So I was with them. And then when I came home, my older sister, um, took care of me, but eventually I ended up back home. Um, at the end of when I got back home, it wasn't long before the civil war in Liberia started, and then another big change uh, took place in Liberia. At the end of 1989, a man named Charles Taylor had trained was was in the United States, fled and escaped prison here. Another story. Um, got to West Africa and trained up an army and started to invade Liberia. When he started to invade Liberia, he told. He or his minister of defense or one of his generals, I remember, got on the news and said, if you're from a certain tribe, if you're from President Doe's tribe, dictator Doe's tribe, you will be killed. If you if you have anything to do with government forces or anything to do with the government, if you don't surrender, you will be killed. 
And if your last name is Doe, you're probably going to get killed. This is over the radio? This is over the radio. As they, as the rebel forces conquered more and more of Liberia and got closer to the capital city. So under two of those three counts, I knew we didn't stand a chance when Taylor's forces eventually took over the country. So we had to get out. Well, by the time we could figure out to get out, they had already taken over the airport and blocked off all of the exits to get out of the country. So we were in the city, stuck in the city. I had just turned 11 at that point. I'm, I'm a sixth grader. Looking back, you can see those events. How much in that moment were you, how aware were you of everything breaking loose in Liberia? Man, it, it, it started to, at first when the war started, it was all the way in the north for three or four months. It would kind of die down and things would happen, but it was further from the city. So we never thought we were still going to school. Well, about six months in, because it started in December, about May, we stopped going to school and there were more soldiers in the city and it was hard to get food in the city and things just started to shut down gradually. And I realized this is getting serious. My neighbors, our neighbors were from the Mandingo tribe, the Mandingo tribe, and they were also in the crosshairs of the rebels. So they fled. So I realized if they left the country, we should probably think about leaving the country as well. Well, my dad sat us down one Sunday evening and said, um, we're going to have to kind of spread out and go into hiding. I'm going to send you guys into different family members. So I got sent, being the youngest, I got sent to my oldest brother, not my oldest, my second oldest brother, um, who had just gotten married and moved out of the house and moved across town. And he's 27 or 28 at the time. So I went to go live with him. My dad said, pack clothes for three weeks because they're going to take over the city. I don't know what's going to happen but pack clothes for three weeks. So I packed for three weeks and I left home. And when I got across town to my brother, the rebels reached that neighborhood quicker than they reached my father's neighborhood. And the fighting between the government forces and Charles Taylor's men was intense. It was August of 1990. And at that point, Sean, you have to imagine we were eating one meal a day. News is barely getting in. We're listening to the BBC just to hear what's happening in our own country. And we're being harassed um, by soldiers from both sides. And they fought in my neighborhood all day. And when the fighting stopped, I mean, I'm talking bullets flying. You could hear the soldiers communicating as they're fighting. I mean, rockets going back and forth. Um, at the end of that day, they started to tell people in the neighborhoods, you need to get out. Taylor's forces, who had taken over the neighborhood, said, so we, we started off, we started walking. We started walking. And that day was when I realized this is very serious. Like our society has fallen apart. We were walking. And as we were walking, they started to interview people and kill them about their tribe if they couldn't speak their native language, they were killed. If they were too fat because they were deemed that they worked for the government, they were killed. If you looked at the rebels wrong, they were killed. And one of the things I realized that day was that the rebels were not exactly trained soldiers. They were teenagers. A lot of them were. Some of them I could say were my age. And they were doing the killing. And we're walking through, and I'm thinking, if anyone asked me my name, I'm going to be the subject of a bullet. I'm going to die. Well, we made it through. Um, we walked. I'm not sure how many miles we walked, but couldn't have been that far. Maybe five or six miles. 
I don't know how we found this house, but we found the house where we slept in for one night. And then we found another place where we started living there. And there were probably 50, 60, 70, 80 people living in that house in two compounds. Internally displaced people sleeping on the floors. And we're eating one meal a day yet again. And um, at the end of those, we lived there for about three months. And the population just dwindled in that house. And I never asked where those people went. I left that compound every day to go get water for us. And every day I left that compound was risking my life so that we could have clean water. Um, it was during that time that we found out that President Doe was captured and killed. And I had an inkling that my dad had been captured and killed because my dad was always with the president because he's, in, you know, he's involved in the Secret Service. I don't know where the rest of my siblings are. I'm not sure my dad's alive. I'm on the other side of town behind Taylor's lines. And I have one sibling, my brother that I'm with. Brother was, yeah, that had possession. He and his family yep. and my in-laws, his wife's family. That's who we're together with. In the war, we prayed every day at noon because our life depended on it. Like I would pray that, man, God, just let me survive or let me find, let us find food so we could eat. And we would pray, we would sing as kids. No one had to direct us to pray. Because at night, when the bomb started going, and you had nowhere to go, and you were holding on to whatever belongings you had, and those were many nights. They were fight at night. And all the warplanes would come through, the Air Force planes would come through and bomb. You're holding on to your bag and scared and crying. You're praying. Right? You're hoping that there is a God that would save you out of this situation because nothing else can. I used to pray that if I was going to die, I would die quickly. And I didn't get injured because I wouldn't be able to find help. If I got badly injured, I would die slowly. Um, when I left the house to go look for water, I would pray if someone caught me, if I became the subject of some rebel's fantasy or whatever, he'd kill me quickly. Yeah, that's the thoughts I had when I was, I was 11. That is heavy thoughts for an 11-year-old. So peacekeepers come to Liberia because the situation is so dire. And they helped kind of, kind of like calm the war down. And we, when they, when the peacekeepers took over our neighborhood, we left and came downtown Monrovia um, in the city. And what I saw in the city were kids who were absolutely, they looked malnourished. But the problem was I was looking at them. I was malnourished. I, I could clearly, I didn't recognize myself one time I looked in the mirror. Like I could see my collarbones clearly. I could see my ribs clearly. I'm one meal a day for six months. And it wasn't like a gourmet meal. There were no chickens, no nothing. It was, just, it was just rice and greens, rice and greens, whatever we could find to eat. Coincidentally, while we were in, at some point while we were in Monrovia, someone had told us that a rocket had fell on my house. They had seen my house and there were no survivors. That's how they, they, they said, oh, a rocket, we saw your house and a rocket fell on it. So I thought maybe my family was in hiding in my old house and they had all been killed. Um, so we got to the port. Monrovia is a port city. And some, somehow, some way, we were able to get passage to get on a ship um, to leave Liberia. When we got on that ship, I had seen so much death up to that point. Um, I was so glad to get on the ship. And when we left Liberia, I told myself, I'll, I'll never come back to this country. I, I mean, I just, I've just seen so much. And it was so, I saw the terrible side of human beings because people were turning other people in to get killed. I had never left Liberia. I'm 11 years old. Um, I leave Liberia. We were now officially refugees in Ghana. Well, I've, I've got to ask. Yeah. 
because I was just thinking before you said this last bit, yeah, I thought, what a unique, odd responsibility your brother must have felt yeah. because he has a wife and then you said a new child, but he's also charged with making sure you're safe. Yeah. My brother made, um, if not for my brother, I'm not here today. Um, my brother made the biggest decision, he and his wife, the biggest decision that changed my life. One, accepting me as a newly married couple, at taking in an 11-year-old, going through the war, making sure I was okay, and getting me out of there, and then going to Ghana. And yeah, they took on a huge responsibility with me. So I just try to keep my head down, do whatever they told me to do, I'd be as respectful as possible. So they went back to Liberia. Well, when they came back, so my life really changed because my brother somehow got a hold of a letter that one of my other brothers had written to me. They had met at some point somewhere while he was in Liberia. I don't know. I don't remember how long they were in Liberia, three months, six months, but they came back. And that letter was a letter that changed the way I saw the world. Um, I opened the letter. I recognized the handwriting as my brother, who's four years older than I am, where we hung out, you know, we're, you know, we're close in edge. And his name's Lemuel. And he says, well, this is our situation. He's explaining how they're stuck behind rebel lines and they're eating one meal a day still. And things are hard and the war has been still hard and we're stuck in Liberia. And then he dropped the bomb. He said, "Um, I want to let you know that our father turned himself into rebels. And he was executed. Um, And his body was left out and we couldn't do anything about it. Um, and my whole world, like I lost my mother two years prior. I didn't know I was an orphan. It's been at least a year and a half and I'm an orphan. I'm living in another country. I've learned another language just so I could be able to communicate with the other kids in the neighborhood. And up to that point, I'm doing well in school because I want to impress my dad. I want to go back and say, hey, dad, I, I lived in Ghana for a year. Look what I did. You know, um, that wasn't going to happen. Um, my heart was, my heart was broken. I used to attend church with my friends um, on Saturdays, and we do Awana groups and you know those kind of things. Are you serious? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I went to Awana for the ping pong, <laughs> and there were girls that went there, so that's why I went. But the teacher of the I don't know what I don't know what denomination it was, but I remember her asking us to sing the song. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in the sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Well, I used to sing that song all the time. All of a sudden, it hit me. I don't think God loves me. Here I am. I have nothing. I have nothing. And it hurt. Did you find yourself becoming angry? I did. And the anger that I wrestled with was towards the person that killed my father and made me an orphan. And I wrestled with anger towards all of the child soldiers who had killed so many people in Liberia. I had anger towards Charles Taylor, all the people who started the war, Prince Johnson, war, warlord, all those people. Severe anger. And I was angry at my situation, right? I wanted to see my siblings, but I couldn't. I wanted to, I wanted to, I wanted to do well in life, and I didn't know what my life would look like. It was still a mystery. Like, are we going to stay in Ghana for the rest of my life? Are we going back to Liberia? What's going to happen? As we wrestled through that, 
I entered middle school and for middle school, I had to travel quite a bit, quite a while, quite a while. Cause there's no school buses and you had to find money if you wanted to get to a good school. So my sister-in-law would give me money every day to take the bus home. And sometimes I would actually take uh, the bus and go down to the refugee camp and look at the board to see if family members were in the camp or something was happening anyway. And then I would walk home. Or sometimes I would just I would just walk home because I just wanted to be alone. And it was a long walk home um, just so I could just, just be by myself. And I, most of the times I would cry because I was so, so tired of where I was in life. Um, we moved across the city. I'm not sure why, but we did. And I had to take three buses to get to school. <laughs> Waking up at four o'clock in the morning and taking three buses to get to school. And then at some point, we we went in for the interviews. We applied to become to come to the United States as um, as refugees. And we were accepted. We went through the interviews with the immigration folks, CIA folks. I don't know who they are, but they ask you the same questions fifteen different ways. And that period takes like a year. Right? We go through that process, that difficult process, because. When you're a refugee, you have to prove that you are who you say you are. You don't have any identification, right? That you are going to be persecuted if you, if you return home. It's not safe for you to return uh, to your country. So we got we got permission to come to the States, I think in October or November of 1992. And I came to America in uh, March of 93. And I remember when I first when we first got permission and everybody found out that we were, we were coming to the States, people started to tell me things. I'm like, I don't want to go to America. You know, it's, it's cold nine months out of the year. It doesn't mean much in Arizona, but like it's cold nine months out of the year. You're going to have to wear a jacket all the time. You can't really play soccer. Do you remember any of your own expectations of the United States? Yeah. Um, I expected, um, I expected a lot more wealth. It's like you're expecting to get somewhere where things are just going to be happening. Like it's just, it's not going to be like this anymore. I'm not going to be poor anymore. Um, I don't know what my brother and my sister-in-law expected. From what I expected, I thought my dream is going to come true. Yes. So uh, bef- way before my parents died, I wanted to be a pilot. And someone told me, librarian boys never become pilots because there's just no schools. And I thought maybe I could be a pilot. Like it's like it's like almost like oh man, everything is possible now. Almost everything's possible. I'm coming to America. So we come to America, <laughs> and the gap between my expectations and reality is huge. Um, we get I get here, and we're in Medford, Massachusetts, in March. They had just had a nor'easter. <laughs> I'd never seen temperatures below seventy-five degrees, and here I was in the freezing cold. This seems very wrong, <laughs> right? <laughs> Where I land, and and I'm I'm going. I'm in the eighth grade. And I'm going to school, and it's March, right? The school year is almost over, and kids were kids were kids were me. Um, I spoke English just fine. Um, when I get to the guidance counselor, she just says, "You know, you're a transfer student. Okay, welcome. Here's your schedule. Here are your books. Here's your lock. The school's this, and your first period is here." I, I had no idea, and I struggled. I remember the first kid I told that I was from Africa asked me some pretty insensitive questions. I remember when the teacher asked me where I was from, and I said, oh, I'm from, I'm from West Africa. Like Every eye just kind of looked at me, and then the question started coming. Oh, have you seen a leopard? Have you seen 
I hadn't seen those things apart from the zoo, right? And I was just like, I'm never going to say that again. We left Medford and we moved to Maryland and I entered high school. And my grades were terrible. My grades were terrible because I couldn't make sense of my world. The war has started back in Liberia again. My siblings are still there. I didn't have closure with my my father's death and things are happening. I'm not sure. And whenever I would sit down to take tests, when the room got quiet, my brain just went back to the war. I wanted so badly to do well in school, but I couldn't. I couldn't get past a certain mental block now that I understand what that is now. I just couldn't. I just couldn't. I just couldn't. Um, I became not a terrible student, but a terrible student. I wasn't I wasn't disrespectful, but I would talk because I, I didn't understand. The teachers were, were talking too fast or idiomatic expressions like I mean, the kids had grown up together in the same neighborhood. So I didn't it was hard for me to make friends, hard for me to do anything. Um I didn't have the right clothing, we were poor. Um it was hard. Um it was hard. And when you say you were poor, describe now poor in the American context versus where you were pre-Civil War in Liberia. I mean, you you went from being in the know on top of everything to I can't navigate anything. Uh, so in Liberia, um, I had someone to wash my clothes. Someone came to cut the grass. So I had a tutor. These are all different people. And a Secret Service guy would actually drive us from school to home. So I had everything that I thought I possibly needed. And when I get to the States, man, I'm getting bread behind the church on Sunday so we could eat. You know, and like we're we're we didn't know how to shop. That's another thing. Um we were like buying things that were probably not great for us. Um clothing was we're getting secondhand clothing. I guess I was getting secondhand clothing. Um just we just never had we didn't have. Yeah. We didn't have. And you felt it. I felt it. So you are about to wrap up high school. What is now in front of you? I'm in 11th grade, and I have failed algebra twice already. Thanks. I can't figure this thing out. I just can't, right? I'm on my third go around. And you need four credits of math, four years of math to graduate. I'm in 11th grade. I don't have one. I get into my math class, and it's, um, it's all ninth graders in there, so I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed high hell. I'm sitting in the back and causing trouble as I usually did. And the teacher says, is, are you Marcus? You need to come to the front. Her name is Mrs. Federline. Um, without Miss Federline, I don't graduate high school because she starts keeping me after school to get the rest of my work done. Um, it's been, I don't know, 28 years since I've been in her classroom. I talked to Miss Federline. Once or twice a month. Miss Fadeline came to my wedding in 2013. Come on, man. When I did the TED Talk, she came. She flew from Maryland across the country to come and watch me speak. And she is my biggest advocate out of anybody on this earth. And it started in the fall of 95 in her classroom. I never told her that how badly I was hurting. She would just say, I knew something was up with you. To go from that point when I was almost not going to graduate high school to where I am today, 
Miss Feldline is one of those people that God used to pull me out of and uh, dire straits. Yeah. Well, so you graduate high school barely. You skinning your teeth. You 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 exact phrase that my English <laughs> teacher used. Skinning your teeth. Yeah. And so the next step for you was nothing. College or was it? Nothing. Did, was there another big, another big ambiguous moment ambiguous for you? Ambiguous moment. Didn't know where I was going to go. My friends were applying for schools and, and going everywhere else. And I was like, how are people applying for schools? And I'm going to the guidance council trying to, my GPA is so low, like, you're not getting into anywhere, Marcus. Um, it's just not going to happen for you. So I, in high school, I started working for Burger King. So I'm working for Burger King. And at this point, I'm coming of age and the rage in my heart for the man who killed my dad is still in my heart. So I'm thinking... I'm going to do something and I'm going to end up back in Liberia. I'm going to find the man who killed my dad and I'm going to kill him. Right. So I start working at Burger King, trying to save up some money. I joined the United States military. I joined the army the summer after I graduated high school and I go off to basic training in December of 1998. And I'm in basic training for about two and a half months when I get really sick and I go to the hospital, you know, I'm learning and I'm, the army is perfect for me. I'm loving it. Like, it's rules, it's guns, it's great. <laughs> and the doctor who sees me at the hospital says, you have a really bad heart murmur. And you can't be in the military with a heart murmur like this because if you were to get injured, your heart will get infected and you will die. So we have to discharge you. And the sense of failure that I felt being rejected by the army, which I thought was my only shot to make something out of my life, I'm back home again. I'm working at Burger King again. All my friends are going off to college. No time. And I'm just sitting there. And one of the days, my boss at Burger King looks at me and said, man, what's happening with you? You always come and you, I used to get the newspaper every day and read. You know? So you're always reading, you know, how, how are you still here in Germantown? Why, why, why aren't you in college? I go, how am I going to get to college? He goes, well, you need to do, you need to be, do better at school. And he said, do you know that the public library is free? No idea the public library is free. I'm 19 years old. And the public library is actually between my job and home. So I started stopping at the public library every day, getting books, getting math books, getting reading books. And I enrolled in a community college and start, started taking classes. I ended up transferring to a bigger school, playing soccer at that school and doing really well and graduating. Graduated degree and then I ended up teaching at a Christian school. Um, it was during my interview at that Christian school, when I first told my boss the real story of my life. And she says, man, you're welcome here. Like you need to be here. God's doing something in your life and you got to go. So, and I still have this unforgiveness thing that I'm fighting with. I understand it. And this is mid two thousands at this point. And this story has so many pieces. I feel like, man, this, this could go on forever. But I, at some point, I started to cling more to God and start to read my Bible more and more and more and more. When I read the scripture in, in Matthew chapter 6, uh, verse 14 and 15, if you do not forgive others, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. And that hits me like a ton of bricks because I have this guy that I want to find and confront about killing my dad. And I'm confronted that I should forgive him. I never thought of forgiving him. I never thought of forgiving him. So at that point, I make a decision that I'm going to try to forgive him. But it's not that easy. So I start um, at this point, fast forward, I would go to summer camp while I was in college to teach soccer. And I started, I met some guys who were from Denver 
So I said, okay, I'm going to move to Denver and work on this forgiveness thing. Actually write, write this story down. So I moved to Denver and I started working at another school and the call to forgive grows and grows and grows and grows. And I realized I don't really have any friends. I don't have any close relationships because I'm so shallow. I never told, I don't want to tell anybody my whole life story. I don't want to get there. It's too painful. It's too sad. It's too. And somebody said, you should probably go see a counselor. So I started seeing a counselor and a counselor is the one who confronts me about forgiveness. She's not a Christian. At least we didn't talk about Christianity in there. Um, and she said, you need to start practicing talking to this man, just like you and I are talking. Who killed your dad? And actually, forgive him. That's the only way you're going to free yourself from this prison. I went there initially just to process grief. And she kind of opened that box. So she opened that box for me. Yet another consequential person in your life. Absolutely. And I wish I could find her today, but I don't know where she is. She's in Denver somewhere, I'm sure. So how did you get into the ministry? Oh, man. Yeah, we go. Damn, now you're talking. Now you're talking. All right. So while I'm at the Christian school, in 2005 or 2006, we took a bunch of sixth graders to an outdoor, like, outdoor ed retreat. And the verse for that week was, here I am, send me, Isaiah 6, 8. And we're praying for these kids that one of them will end up in the ministry. Like, oh, yeah, some, send them, right? Send Lord, and, send them. And I just hear this voice. It's not even an audible voice. It's like, you're not praying this prayer for these kids. You're actually praying this for you. Whoa. I thought, no, 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 no. Because at that point, I was going to teach for a few years. I wanted to go to law school. I wanted to go into politics. I wanted to do something else completely different in my life. Well, I said, well, I'm still going to stick with my plan. Send me there. Send me to Congress. That's what. Mm-hmm. Lord send me to Congress. So I, I, I'm ignoring this thing. Here's the thing. I would at that point I was a single guy, so I would like I would go to different churches, different places. I wish I brought my Bible to show you, but every time I would be having a rough time, like doubting it, when I walked into that church, the pastor would be preaching on that verse. I have it in my old King James Bible. The dates that it comes up. It's like five or six times over 10 years or so. And when I started dating my wife, I told her about this. I said, we're going to test this. We went to some church, Calvary Aurora in, in, in Colorado on a Saturday night service. I said, if I walk in here, you know, she's like, no, it's not going to happen. We kind of, we just said, oh, we're just going to church. I was like, no, I'm thinking this is going to happen. And sure enough, we sat in that back row and he talked about that verse. No way. 2011. 2011 or 2012, yep. At that point, I said, okay, I got to go. So I started applying for, for seminaries. And um, in 2013, I went off to seminary. And um, before then, I actually went back to Liberia uh, to see my siblings for the first time in 20 years and try to find a man who killed my dad um, after 20 years. Yeah, that's how, I, that's how I got to the ministry. And when I got to seminary, I knew nothing about Christian culture. I couldn't tell you who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was. I had not read the books. I had never been to Christian undergrad. I had no idea. I knew about basic things about the Bible, but I was reading 70 books a semester just to catch up with my friends who had gone to Bible undergrad so I could understand the movements, so I could understand like 
what reform was, what Presbyterian. I didn't know the difference between Presbyterian and Methodist. I didn't know anything. And Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary educated me, and I drank everything they tried to teach me there. And it was such a formative time for me. Marcus, good grief. I wish I had five more hours to dedicate to just talking to you about this stuff. Who knows? Maybe there's a car ride in our future sometime coming up. Uh, your ministry is so amazing to me. The experiences, how you've been able to take loss and still taking loss, still processing it, right? But with open hands saying, how can I bless other people through my life? Because even sharing the little bit that you've shared today, that means going back to deep spots, hard places, and reliving that again. And I appreciate your strength to do that. And knowing that there's people every day that are coming into countries all over the world who are displaced, who are experiencing similar hardships that you had experienced, um, complex lives, trying to navigate culture and their own emotions and their own trauma and not having somewhere to process that or work through it or not even having the terms to grapple with it. Thinking of we as Americans having the refugee and even the immigrant that come in, what are some ways that you would inform us and you would say, hey, this is, this is some things to consider when you, when you see the guy at whatever store or you go to church and this person happens to be at your church with this background, what are some things that you would say to us to inform us to be better, better people with him? I think uh, I know that a lot of people who leave their countries uh, probably didn't want to leave. Um, they left because of some kind of hardship, some loss, some deep loss. They, they're coming with just their lives. They've lost, they, they've lost in a sense of material things, culture, uh, familiarity with, with systems and everything. They're coming to a new land, maybe even a new language. Um, the patience, I think one of the things we can offer is uh, an extreme amount of patience. I think, uh, I know folks want to get involved with refugees when they get here. Oh, I want to help. What, what they need, they need material things. They actually need a long-term view of relationship. If you're going to get involved with people who are coming to this country for the first time as refugees, be in it for the long haul. Like language barrier, be in for it. Um, schooling, be in for it. Um, helping them go shopping, be in for it. Um, helping them fill out job paperwork, be in for it. Um, listening to them, hearing their stories, be in for it when they're ready to tell you. Think it, it, it doesn't take six months. It doesn't take a year. You're probably looking at a two, three, four, five year. Just take it as a friendship, a lifelong friendship that people need. Because in our country, there's, so many, there's a system for everything in America that we don't realize. When you walk into the grocery store, take myself for example, I would walk into the grocery store. I didn't understand the difference between for sale and on sale. Everything in Liberia was on sale when it was on the shelf. Like it was, right? In America, when something's on sale, it means it's on discount. So I used to think that when things were not on sale, they weren't for sale. That's simple, but it's hard. Buying gas, knowing the type of stores, the buying quality things, not just cheap things. 
you know, there are cheap things that you can buy, but you end up buying them 10 times, right? Buying quality things, walking them through how to negotiate pay raises. When they go to the doctor, what to ask for, how payment works at the doctor. We have no clue. You're gonna, if you're going to get involved with refugees, take it as a long-term friendship, whether it's with one person or with a family. It's long-term. So last question, Marcus. What do you say to that 14-year-old refugee who just landed in Massachusetts today? Um, the confusion, the chaos, the expectations not being met, the unfriendliness of the kids, it gets better, it gets easier. God sees you. You are worth more to God than you imagine. Um, people may not see you as quite human. People may dismiss you. But God has not disowned or dismissed you. Um, the time period, what you're going through is necessary to build what God is building in you. I think that's what I would say to a 14-year-old. Um, a lot of things will fade away. But the love of God in your life just will never fade away. I can't believe this is my life compared to where I came from. I cannot believe. There are nights that I cry on my pillow still, thanking God that I'm alive and that I have the means to provide for a family in the United States. I never thought I would be able to, but God. Thank you, brother.